Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined once again by Ben Gessling and Michael Rand of the Star Tribune via Zoom. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? <clears throat> doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. It's Arizona week. We're mm-hmm. moved on. We are not on to Cincinnati. We are on to Arizona, as the Minnesota Vikings would like to say. They're trying to get the bad taste out of their mouth. Dalvin Cook talked today about uh, that fumble, losing the game in Cincinnati and trying to move forward. And the test is not going to get much easier on the road in Phoenix in Glendale, where the Cardinals look fantastic in their week one game against the Tennessee Titans. We will break down Sunday's game in Arizona, the issues the Vikings might face on offense and defense, maybe even some signs of optimism that we have coming out of week one and what the Vikings might be good at. That's kind of hard to see the forest through the trees from that week one game. But we should start with a little bit of negative, a little bit of the obvious. Ben, we heard from Garrett Bradbury today talking about the offensive line, the issues that they had in Cincinnati. We heard a lot from Mike Zimmer, too, in saying that identifying the defensive fronts by the Bengals. One of the simpler things that's supposed to be for uh, an NFL center, especially one in Garrett Bradbury entering his third year, struggling. Uh, We also saw Garrett blown backward plenty of times too. So I guess what what stood out to you from what we heard from Garrett, from Mike Zimmer today, just about the offensive line and the state of it? Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of uh, terse moments from Zimmer uh, on a number of different subjects, but that was certainly one of them terms of being able to figure out the fronts and I asked him about other opportunities to get play action shots down the field and he basically said yeah if we can protect and and get guys on the right guys so I mean some of the there is probably few occasions where Mike Zimmer's uh, ire or frustration is as obvious as when people are making elementary mistakes and I think this is certainly one of those times where you feel like if it's, if, if you're getting beat athletically, it's one thing, but if you're not able to diagnose fronts and figure out where pressure is coming from and, and who's dropping and they had a lot of trouble with that on Sunday, they had physical problems as well. I mean, Kara Bradbury getting pushed back into Kirk Cousins lap as many times as he did is, is a big problem. And it's not one that is connected necessarily to diagnosing a front, but if you are making mistakes to beat yourself, I, that's that's a, a cardinal sin to Mike Zimmer. I remember him saying when he got hired that he he talked about how half the games in an NFL season are won and lost by the team that makes the fewer the fewest number of mistakes. So if you are that team, you're going to win eight games at least every year. And I think if those types of things continue to be issues, you're going to hear him continue to sound exasperated about it. Yeah, and Mike, we talked before the season about the track record of first-round picks not being too great for the Minnesota Vikings. The one who's still playing for them outside of Justin Jefferson, Garrett Bradbury, just it was such an awful start to the season for him. Where does that put – we always ask you about your confidence meter on the O-line. Where does does that put it after the opener? I mean, not great, right? He he was – it was the same issues we've seen the first two years, right? I mean, aside from – what Ben was talking about just now, and they talked about in media access today with the, the diagnosing of the fronts. It's just that Garrett Bradbury is not <clears throat> strong enough and or you know doesn't have the right base to stand up to some of these bigger defensive tackles. And you know, that shows up in the run game sometimes, but it mostly shows up 
in pass protection and certainly shows up in obvious passing situations where these guys can just kind of, you know, gear up and go get Kirk cousins. And when the rest of your line, isn't that great either, when you're still trying to figure out your guards, when, you know, you're playing a, a backup in Rashad Hill at one of the tackle spots, that's, it's just, it's problematic all around, but Bradbury, like, I don't know what they can do. Cause this is just, this is a recurring problem. This is not a, you know, anytime they go against somebody who's got some power in at defensive tackle, which is a lot of teams, um, they're going to have problems. I don't know if they can move the pocket, what they can do, but they can't just keep pretending like Garrett Bradbury can hold up in that protection. Cause he can't. Yeah. Mike Zimmer said after the game, we're going to have to give him <laughs> some more help with the guards. And that's not a good thing to say when your guards are younger than your center or less experienced than the center that you're trying to help in the middle there. Ezra Cleveland's a second year player. Ole Udo is a first year starter. Those guys might be asked to help Garrett a little bit more. And oh, by the way, Ben, we haven't even talked about Rashad Hill, who's going to be going up against Chandler Jones on Sunday in Arizona. Chandler Jones has five sacks in his opener against the Titans, against a a proven left tackle and Taylor Lewan for Tennessee, who has to come out after the game and say, I, I just got exposed by Chandler Jones. It, it doesn't set up a great, uh, great matchup for the Vikings going into this one against the Cardinals. No, it doesn't. I mean, the, the biggest problem you're going to have there is that you have this front now that can pressure you in ways that we've seen it, it's on tape. I mean, we've seen that he got the better of Taylor Lewan, one of the better left tackles in the league. And this was also a team that shut Derrick Henry down last week. So, I mean, Garrett Bradbury said it today, the Vikings and Titans are very similar in the way they like to use personnel. In fact, we've seen some of that. Uh, I think there have been tight ends and fullbacks, Michael Pruitt, Card Blasting game that have gone from Minnesota to Tennessee because they, they're interested in the same types of players. So there's going to be some carryover in the approach and, if you if the Titans had issues with the personnel they have, it stands to reason the Vikings could have the same issues. Yeah, the Vikings are going to try to run the ball. They're going to try and do a lot of the same things. And the Cardinals, as Mike Zimmer said, like to stack the box. They get eight people in there, like to play single high safety. That only works for a play-action passing game if you can actually stay in those situations, actually call those plays, not be in third and 15, third and 20, and all the things they were in Cincinnati. So it's going to have to take on a different tone. Um, Mike, we got a question about Christian Derrissaw in the mailbag that we will get to, but with Rashad Hill, it, was it even a situation where they're going to be able to carry this out with him? They put him on an Island a lot in Cincinnati. They didn't help him too much. I imagine they're going to try and help him a little bit more in Arizona, but it seems to me like they have to just to get through this portion where you've got your backup left tackle and you're going to need him in the game, probably for the first few games of the season, if not more. Yeah, and that's the it's the trade-off, right? Because if you help him more, that probably means maybe more two tight end sets if you're trying to run more. And that, you know, that takes some of your dynamic, you know, playmaking off the field, especially now without Irv Smith. Like if you've got Irv Smith, it's not as much of an issue. Then you can kind of run or throw out of that set when you've got Tyler Conklin, um, who's good, but then your other tight end is less experienced or less, you know, you're not as crazy about doing that, then all of a sudden it's like, well, then you become more predictable on offense or less dynamic at least. And then Rashad Hill, let's not forget, like aside from pass protection, like one thing that Riley reef was really good at was run blocking. Um, that was kind of his, that wasn't that the better of his skill sets when he was here. And, you know, Dalvin cook didn't have much room to run the other day. And that wasn't all Rashad Hill. Obviously that was a group effort, but you know, let's not neglect the fact that Dalvin ran for like three yards of carry was I think Ben in your, your second day story to the day you pointed out, he was getting 
you know, on first down, he was getting barely anything. Um, they were getting into second and longs a lot. Like it's not just pass protection, it's run blocking too. And that's, that goes to show like, that's exactly what Arizona stopped with a really good Tennessee team last week. So you just, you look at it and you're like, am I missing something? Like, how are they going to, how is it going to get better when, you know, I know they've got good skill position, but if you, if their offensive line isn't as good as Tennessee's and Tennessee struggled to do these things, I don't like this matchup at all. I believe it was uh, on first downs for Dalvin Cook, 14 carries for 20 yards. So um, not a great setup in terms of what you're going to be able to get early in the, uh, or early in the, you know, early in the series. That's not good. 14 carries for 20 yards. That is not good. That is not going to help. It's Adrian Peterson-esque. You always used to get <laughs> stacked up, and then you'd break the one for 70, and all of a sudden you'd have you know 20 carries for 85 yards. Yeah, there was no feast after the famine-famine. <laughs> there, there really was not. Um, so the offense has some issues, and to unlock the kind of downfield passing game, the one that we saw all of last year with Adam Thiel and Justin Jefferson getting a lot of room downfield – They've got to work that running game early in downs. They got to try to set up some of those deep shots because this is not an offense where Kirk Cousins can sit back and shotgun and pick his shots downfield. He just doesn't have that kind of a game, that kind of a pre-snap readability. He just doesn't. That's not his game. That's not how they want to play football. And uh, they're going to try and do it the way they've always done it against an Arizona team that somehow has a defense now. And, and that's surprising to me because this Cardinals team, we've always thought of it as being a high-powered offense, and it's just going to be a shootout where you're going to have to win 40 to 30. Um, this Cardinals team looks like between Isaiah Simmons, who was an eighth overall pick last year at linebacker with Buda Baker at safety, healthy. They've moved on from Patrick Peterson, it would seem, and are doing kind of fine. And so that was surprising to me. Ben, you sat down with Patrick Peterson before the season to do a story on him and just his arrival with the Vikings. How did you think his opener went? And I guess how much do you think he was looking forward to this game as opposed to last week's game? Well, he didn't get tested a whole lot. I mean, he got beat on the on the one. I, I think he was in zone, as Mike Zimmer said today. But I think overall had a better day than Bashad Breland did. And Breland got picked on a little bit and, and uh, probably got caught peeking into the backfield, as you talked about in your film review, on the uh, the long touchdown to Jamar Chase. I, I thought Peterson was fine. I mean, I, I think we're going to get a better sense of that on Sunday because they're going to get tested an awful lot and they're going to get spread out an awful lot. You're going to see the Cardinals come out with, three, four receivers, though I think the Vikings are probably going to spend almost all of this game at nickel or, you know, some variation of, of that where they've got five or more defensive backs in the field. So your depth is going to get tested. Peterson's ability to cover in, in man situations is probably going to get tested to some degree. His ability to run around for three hours is going to get tested. I think this is going to be a better indicator of where he's at. And I certainly think he's excited about it because he talked a little bit in his interview with me about not feeling a whole lot of uh, love lost in, in his time departing from the Cardinals. I, I think he felt like they didn't necessarily use him in the right way. He talked about that with me a little bit where he got away from the things he had always done in terms of being a press corner and doing that really well. And they didn't really want to use him that way anymore. And when it, even when it wasn't working for him, he felt like they kind of kept having him go back to the same things and he wasn't really put in positions to succeed and, I think he did another interview this summer where he had quite a few pointed things to say about Steve Kime. So, yeah, I, I would think this one is probably circled on his calendar and probably has been for a while. 
Yeah, I think in the offseason, because Patrick Peterson obviously has his own podcast, and I think on that podcast, I think it's all, all Things Covered is the name of it, he had brought up uh, how Steve Kime and the Cardinals GM kind of made it seem like they wanted to bring him back this past offseason. And he said he found out he wasn't being brought back when he signed with the Vikings, basically. Basically, he had just never heard anything, according to Patrick, had never heard anything from the Cardinals GM. It was just kind of this, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to you when free agency opens and we'll get you a deal. And then he just never heard anything from them at all. And then the Vikings were the first ones to come calling, basically. And so, he, yeah, he felt jaded by that. And, and I guess Benny told you he was, he's clearly looking forward to this game to show them that, hey, you should have called me to bring me back. And I thought it was interesting, too. I, I know Patrick probably saw the comments from the Cardinals defensive coordinator about a week or two ago. He was asked about his secondary, and he said, yeah, we got guys who want to tackle now. And that, that seemed kind of like a veiled shot at the guys who yeah. used, used to be there and, and Patrick Peterson obviously being the number one guy uh, in that spot. Mike, you and I talked on, on um, Daily Delivery about Bashad Breeland and, and some of the issues he had had uh, in Cincinnati. Um, this game's not going to get any easier for him either because Chris, even though Larry Fitzgerald's gone, Christian Kirk scores two touchdowns for the Cardinals last week. Then you've got Rondale Moore, the Purdue product. Anybody who watches Big Ten football knows Rondale Moore, five foot seven guy. He catches four passes for 60 some yards. They use him as an underneath screen threat. Like these Cardinals have a lot of, of targets for Kyler Murray to throw the ball to. They do. And, you know, uh, as much as Breland, you know, struggled on a few of those plays, I think he made some better plays as the game, as the game went on. I think he had, did you have the run stop on Mixton that kind of on that fourth down where they never should have gone for it? Was that him? Yeah. That was him. And he had a, a pass breakup later. So it wasn't all bad. Like you and I talked about, but, I guess two things. One, like, yeah, he he's kind of feast or famine. And is that something you want in a corner? Like a guy who's usually pretty good, but who gives up a big chunk play. That's, that's kind of the dangerous way to live. And two, like we talked about, like all it took was him getting a little banged up and Chris Boyd is on the field. Like that's not the depth that I necessarily would want. I know they've got Mackenzie Alexander. They, they, they kind of, you know, commit to him in the slot and that's kind of more his spot, but you know, it, it's, it, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's just kind of shows you that anytime there's an injury, next man up generally is not uh, not close to that level. Yeah, the fall has been precipitous for uh, Cameron Dantzler. He he goes from starting ten games last year, looking like this offseason. Hey, maybe he'll be that kind of reliable reserve corner, talented reserve corner that you can turn to if your season goes south with an injury or something in that secondary. Um, and he wasn't even active. And Mike Zimmer said it had everything to do with special teams. He said, if he doesn't play special teams, if he's not a contributor there, that's what backups got to do. And so that's why they activate Chris Boyd. They activate Harrison hand over him in Cincinnati, but it is more than that too, because Mike Zimmer said in the off season, Chris Boyd's just playing better at corner. Like we, we like what Chris Boyd is giving us at corner more than they like what Cameron Dantzler was doing. So it's twofold with Dantzler. He's, he seems like he's got a long way to go to get the trust of the coaching staff, to get back on the field and back contributing. And Ben, we talk about wasted draft capital. That, there's another one, two corners just last year in the draft, and you're not getting anything from either of them. Yeah. I mean, when you, last year, you cut Xavier Rhodes, you let Trey Waynes walk, you let Mackenzie Alexander walk at the time. Now he's obviously back, but you're, you're trying to turn that secondary over thinking that we can go young. And certainly in the case of Xavier Rhodes, we can replace him with somebody younger and, do this on the fly and make it work. Obviously doing that on the fly did not work, but whatever payoff you were going to get from going through the growing pains last year is 
almost completely gone. You cut Jeff Gladney, obviously because of the domestic assault charge uh, that he's still facing in Texas. But now Christian Derrissaw looks like he's not in the mix. And when Mike Zimmer is talking about special teams, he said it in one of those kind of classic Zimmer terse comments that leave, that left you plenty of room to read between the lines. Seemed like probably a willingness to go do that or a willingness to accept where he is on the depth chart and, and what comes with that is is maybe an issue for Darisaw. It seemed like that, or not Darisaw, Dantzler. It seemed like what Zimmer was kind of trying to drive out a little bit there was some of the, the acceptance of where he is for Cameron Dantzler. So when you look at what they've tried to do, you now have a guy that is – from a football perspective, nothing other than dead money on your roster. And you have a guy that is buried on your depth chart in terms of two guys you took in the top three rounds last year. So you're, you're basically getting nothing from that draft, which means, and I think we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but it's worth repeating. You don't know what that group looks like beyond this year. In fact, it may be even worse because I think when we've talked about this in the past, the assumption was, well, Dantzler is going to continue to develop. Trade rumors this week that the 49ers called about him and the fact that he's been buried on the depth chart would indicate that he's not in the plans at the moment. So the position is in as dire a straits as it's been in a long time, maybe not short term. It probably is in that position short term, too, because of the lack of depth. But when you look at it long term, man, it, it's uh, it's anybody's guess as to what it's going to look like. I thought Dantzler was okay last year. Was I, am I wrong about that? Or did, did he just, did something happen at a certain a point? Yeah, hurt a lot. And I well, think he got probably yeah. talked up a little bit in terms of, well, we see flashes of progress and, and you try to extrapolate that out, but there's a long way between flashes of progress and being a, a solid cover corner for 900 something snaps during the course of the NFL season. I think, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is just, they're trying to sell it a little bit and they're, we're also trying to extrapolate based on the little bit that we see, assuming there's going to be a progression. And if there's not, then you're, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, we did see, I think flashes is the right word of it. We, we, we did see him make some plays on the ball, use that length. The, the dude's six foot two, and that's why they took him in the third round. And it, it really speaks to how far he's fallen. The fact that if I remember correctly, when dancer was at Mississippi state, he had a great game against Jamar chase. Didn't he? Am I? Yeah, I, he did. I think that was one of the reasons they took it. Because Spielman always talks about the way you perform against the best is going to stick out in our evaluation. Yeah, and so the fact that he in college not too long ago was shutting down a wide receiver who was college football's best and who you were facing back in the NFL on, on last Sunday in Cincinnati and the Vikings said, no, kid, we don't need you. That speaks to how far he's fallen. So I do think he's got a long way to come back, and it's going to have to be in practices this this season throughout. And who knows, even if by the end of the year we're seeing him, I think that's how far it is because Mike Zimmer has, has said he likes Chris Boyd. He likes what he can give you, and we haven't necessarily seen that translate on the field yet, but coaches certainly believe he's given them that trust. And he's also a guy who has bought in on special teams, which helps him quite a bit too. And we hear often how that's difficult for young guys, and maybe that's being difficult for Cameron Dantzler right now. Um, Mike, before the podcast, I'd asked you, what was your most optimistic takeaway from that opener? And you mentioned the defense. You thought you saw a lot of things from the defense that you liked. Why don't you run through that for me? What was it about that performance that you saw? And I presume it was in the first half of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, we're being awfully negative for a first place team. 
Uh, <laughs> second, so I'm just kidding. Second of all, um, and they aren't technically the first place. The whole division just looks looked like hot garbage on on Sunday. This could be a division won by now. Green Bay obviously is going to get better, but if if Green Bay isn't that good, this could be a, a division won by someone with nine wins or ten wins at, at the most. Um, what I liked was I thought the defense started out really well, and I thought they just they they were asked to do a lot because the offense just kept shooting themselves in the foot. They, they Cincinnati had 13 legitimate drives in that game. That's a lot of drives. The Vikings gave up, you know, 27 points, which isn't great, but it's about two points a drive. If you give up two points a drive, most games, you're probably going to be pretty satisfied with, with that. You're probably going to, most games, you're probably going to have seven, eight, nine drives. You're probably going to keep a team under 20 in, in that case. So, you know, what I liked was I thought the front four held up a lot better. I liked what Michael Pierce did. What I didn't like was when, you know, when Pierce or Tomlinson was off the field, it was obvious the teams were going to, that the Bengals were going to try to exploit them on the run. And they did that. They gave they got a lot of rushing yards and, you know, the Bengals has hit some home run plays that, you know, were well executed. So I, I felt like overall, like the defense was pitching a shutout for most of that first half and the offense finally got a touchdown. And then, you know, the end of that first half, it really just pivoted when the offense couldn't do anything and gave them the ball back again. And, you know, had some struggles, but, you know, really put them in position to stay in the game and win despite all of the offensive miscues. So I, I think the defense, it still left me feeling pretty good, even though, you know, I think the depth is still a question. I, I, I liked a lot of what I saw, especially from the front four. Yeah, they had, I think when I was going through, going back to the game, when I was working on my Monday morning story, uh, I think until the the field goal, obviously, that won the game in the, in the fourth and one that uh, the borough converts to set that up. They had like five or six third down stops in a row. They, I mean, they basically hadn't given up a first down for the better part of the fourth quarter and overtime. They were just forcing punts after punt. And that's kind of been the – if you look at a hallmark of a Mike Zimmer defense in terms of you know, some defenses, it's big sack numbers. Some defenses, it's big turnover numbers. All of these kinds of things of the, the dominant defenses in the league. Um, I would say, I would submit the thing that has been the most characteristic of a great Mike Zimmer defense is the ability to get off the field on third down. They set an NFL record for lowest third down conversion percentage defensively, I believe, in 2017. And I want to say they broke that again. 19, either, maybe. I, I want to say it was either, either 18 or it might have it was either 19 or might've even been 18, but they, I, whether they broke it or whether they finished first in the league two years in a row, I don't remember, but they, they do hold the record for the lowest third down conversion percentage against them in a season. And that to me has been the thing that if there's a, a brand of a great Mike Zimmer defense in Minnesota, it's on third downs. So the fact that they had that stretch where they were able to do that in the second half had a big part of them getting back into it. I mean, really, the the stretch where the game turned was at the end of this end of the first half, beginning of the second half. And other than that, defensively, they had a lot of stops. Like you say, they I think they actually ended up somehow, despite all of the third and twenty fours and all this stuff, they converted a higher percentage of their third downs on Sunday than the Bengals did, which is uh, bizarre given how many crazy third down and longs they put themselves in. But uh, some of that's also credit to the defense being able to get off the field for the better part of the game. Yeah, looking it up, the Vikings set the NFL record in 2017. Um, I think it was like 25% third down conversions allowed. 
And then 2018 led the NFL again. It was a little bit higher clip, but yeah, back-to-back years, they led it. And that's, yeah, that you're right. That is such a good hallmark for them. And, and one of the things, because here's Zimmer talk about situational football so much and third downs obviously are the king situation for defenses um, in the NFL. And, and the Vikings can do that with these pressure packages. And they did start diversifying a lot of their defensive line, which I'm interested to see how that evolves. And this is without Anthony Barr, without their primary blitzer on the field. But when they've got Everson Griffin, Stephen Weatherly, Daniil Hunter, guys who can move inside and outside, we did see them shift around quite a bit and give a lot of different looks to the offense. And I think that helps quite a bit. And if they ever get Barr back, we did not see Anthony Barr practicing on Wednesday of this week, which is another bad sign for his availability. Um, the head coach maintains that he's close, but we have no idea if Anthony's going to actually be returning. So, but having played out there last time they, they went out there either. Say that again. He didn't play the last time they went out there either. That was that crazy Thursday night game where Zimmer didn't get his cheeseburgers after they uh, got beat by the Seahawks and he went through McDonald's drive-thru and they didn't bring him his cheeseburgers. Griffin was hurt. Barr was hurt. Harrison Smith was hurt. Newman had to play safety. Um, I think Anthony Harris maybe got his first start. So that was the last time they went out there was uh, an Anthony Barr injury was part of the plot that week as well. You need to back up and explain the cheeseburger thing. So that, so they got blown (laughs) out on Sunday by the Seahawks at TCF and like Adrian was complaining about not getting enough carries. So they got out coached. And so they basically had, they lost this game and they had to go out to Arizona and Arizona was really good. Arizona that, ended up that winning that. 20, that was 2015, right? 2015 Arizona ended up winning the division. The, the Seahawks came in as a wild card to play the Vikings in the first round. And we all remember how that went, but if the Vikings had won that game, they would have gone out to play in Arizona in the second round. And it would not have been the crazy Aaron Rodgers hail Mary fest. Uh, followed by the Larry Fitzgerald uh, shuffle pass that it turned into. I mean, it turned into a great game, but it would have been the Vikings going out there instead, and the Packers would have played probably Carolina, I think, if I remember that playoff field correctly. But So they are in the regular season. They lose to Seattle. They're supposed to go to Arizona on Thursday night, the, the West Coast Thursday night game that they, they love to complain about whenever they get it on their schedule, with good reason. But everybody was hurt. Griffin was hurt, so he wasn't going to play in his game going back home to his home state. Harrison Smith was hurt. Barr was hurt. Zimmer talked about during, I think, one of his press conferences that week. Yeah, I went to the McDonald's drive through and I ordered two cheeseburgers, and they only gave me one. So it was just, you know, that kind of a week for Mike Zimmer, kind of the sad sack uh, story that he told there. And I think that McDonald's ended up giving him, like, 200 cheeseburgers. Did, so I remember that. Sorry. I mean, I the the difference of when you're an NFL coach and they screw up your drive through order, you have the bully pulpit to go say, hey, they messed it up, and then they come back and uh, fix it for you. And they almost it, won that. They almost won that game too. I remember it was a Bridgewater yes. got strip sacked, and they blamed North Turner. Seven step drop. They blamed North Turner. Got beat by Dwight Freeney, and Bridgewater got asked after the game, "Did you have the option to check out of that play?" And he was not one to criticize any of this stuff. And um, he goes, "I did not have the option to check out of that play." And Zimmer came out and said he didn't like the call. And then Norv was uh, very defensive of it. A lot, lot of things happened in that game. Hence the reason so much of it is uh, still so top of mind six years later. I love how Zimmer did the uh, thing that's, and I'm not saying Mike brought that up specifically to get extra cheeseburgers out of McDonald's, but I did like how he basically did the thing sports writers do when they have a bad airline experience and they take it to Twitter. 
they take it to the public airwaves to complain in order to get some kind of response out of customer service. Because if you don't do that, you won't get any response from customer service. And Mike yeah. Zimmer, Mike Zimmer does it at his podium session. And McDonald's immediately is like, "We can't hand, we can't have this bad press. Take two hundred cheeseburgers." And then yeah, he, it's hearing when he does it. Yeah, I think he gave him to like his foundation. I can't remember what happened, but uh, Mike yeah, Zimmer did not. So. Mike Zimmer did not end up eating two hundred cheeseburgers. Um, that was the know. that was the last trip to Arizona, and it was very eventful. So yeah, no Anthony Barr on that one. The defense is healthier heading into this trip to Glendale, Arizona, where they're going to face the Cardinals. So with the talk about the defense, how confident, Mike, are you that they can handle at all Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins? And the, 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 you know, arsenal of weapons that the Cardinals seem to have and what allowed them to just put up five touchdowns against Tennessee. I mean, it's going to have to be good because I feel like that we, we talked about the offensive matchup wasn't great. Um, you know, Kyler Murray presents a whole different set of challenges than Joe Burrow. I think Joe Burrow played pretty well the other day and he's got a good future, but Kyler Murray, you know, just the dual threat that he is, that's a kind of quarterback that's given them problems, given Mike Zimmer defenses problems in the past because, you try to contain him, he breaks it, he'd be off script stuff, the Russell Wilson kind of effect that we've seen over the years, and that's never gone well for the Vikings or or Mike Zimmer. So, but I mean, I think they're gonna have to keep it close. I don't think the offense is gonna be able to put up more than 20 points in this game. So I feel like they, they're gonna have to manage that pretty well. And you know, I think you know, maybe the offense has more. That was that was the other kind of bright spot, I guess I saw on the other day was Cousins actually leading a a game tying drive. That was such a, such a problem last year. I feel like those kind of two minute drills at the end of games, like the Tennessee game sticks out. It's had a bunch of situations last year where the game was right there. You get one drive, one, you know, get into field goal range and make a field goal and actually pulled that off against Cincinnati cousins actually led him down the field for 60 yards or so without a timeout. So I guess that was the other kind of positive I took out of it, but can they sustain that kind of thing for four quarters over, over Arizona? I don't know. I think the defense is going to have to be awfully good against a pretty good Arizona offense. Yeah. And Deandre Hopkins too is, is a type of player that I don't know. I'm not sure how the Vikings are going to be able to scheme to stop him. It's going to have to be maybe a lot of Patrick Peterson and Harrison Smith over the top or something like that, because uh, two touchdowns right out of the gate for Deandre Hopkins. I think he had five catches for almost a hundred yards in their debut, the Cardinals jumped out to a 17-0 lead in that game against Tennessee, basically by just targeting DeAndre Hopkins. He scored their first two touchdowns in that game. Uh, ben, what did you think of the new look secondary for the Vikings in their debut outside of Bashad Breeland, who we already talked about, and uh, their prospects, I guess, going into this game? Yeah, I, I think this is an awfully tough matchup, kind of like we've talked about. I mean, I, I just think you're going to get spread out. You're going to have concepts that the Cardinals are running stack sets. We see a lot of that from them where you got three receivers to one side and it's guys trying to pass off people in coverage and, and figure out who's got who. And a lot of that stuff, it's going to be interesting to see because I think a lot of the adjustments we saw to the defense that we've heard Mike Zimmer and Andre Patterson talk about, at least what we saw Sunday was a lot to the fronts. We saw some different fronts like you talked about. And I think we, we saw some looks that had more of a three, four alignment to them. Um, in terms of where the, where the ends were positioned, where the nose tackle was, that kind of thing. But this one, to me, is going to be interesting to see how they defend this team because a lot of the pattern matching stuff they like to play, the, the way the Cardinals like to position their receivers, I think it's going to create some problems in terms of trying to pass people off and everybody trying to understand how they're supposed to play it. And this especially, I think, would be a, a tougher deal if you had a younger secondary 
and some of those things where guys are trying to process things on the fly, maybe that becomes an even bigger issue in that type of game. But I think between the things the Cardinals can do, the, the people they have, DeAndre Hopkins, AJ Green, still no slouch as their as a number two receiver, and the the secondary guys they have, Christian Kirk, like you mentioned, Rondell Moore, and Kyler Murray just running around creates a lot of issues. You're going to have to have a secondary cover for five six seconds sometimes, I think, and, and you're going to have uh, that pass rush have to be awfully disciplined, like Mike Zimmer talked about this morning. Didn't you guys, uh, didn't I see you tweet right before the, we recorded that Harrison hand wasn't practicing on, uh, on Wednesday. And could that, you know, if, if Arizona is going to use a lot of three and four wide sets, could we see Cameron Dantzler in this game? Yeah, that's, that's going to be a thing. If, if Harrison hand is out, he's a guy who does help them on their kick and coverage phases on special teams. They got to call somebody up. So if it's, an extra linebacker, uh, wide receiver, corner. It could be Cameron Dantzler if they actually get him to contribute. But if they feel better about, I don't know, uh, one of these wide receivers stepping in and, and playing more on special teams, I could see that as well in terms of them adjusting for that. But I don't think they go into this game, let's say Harrison Hand can't play, they won't go into this game with just one backup corner available. I would imagine they have to bump Dantzler up to the active roster then because of injury at that point. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they – stop or try to stop Kyler Murray in this Cardinals offense because this is the first of two back-to-back games they're going to be facing mobile quarterbacks in Kyler Murray and then Russell Wilson to open the home yeah. slate the following They've never had any trouble with him though it should be fine <laughs> Russell Wilson is he six and oh against the Vikings in his career uh, I believe it's seven seven and oh he has never lost mm. to the Vikings it's five five in Seattle and two in Minnesota has never played indoors for whatever and, that's worth and mind you, when they've faced Russell Wilson, they've tried to keep him in the pocket by having Anthony Barr spy him, and they don't have Barr seemingly for this game or maybe not the next one. So their ability to keep the uh, mobile quarterback in the pocket, it'll be interesting to see the chess match of how Mike Zimmer decides to do that. Um, all right, guys, we've got 15 minutes left. Let's do a mailbag. We've got a lot of questions here, um, and I want to start with one from Terry, who asks a simple question that's got to be a top of mind of all Vikings fans. When will Christian Derrissaw be back? We spent the entire time talking about Rashad Hill for um, the most part with the O-line here at the beginning of this podcast. And Rashad Hill's he's just a guy, right? Like he's, as Mike, as Mike uh, Rand was saying here at the, the top of the podcast and saying that he's going to give you some admirable efforts. He might throw in a good game or two, but overall he's just going to be one of these reserve guys who can come in and just help you in a pinch, but not necessarily – be the franchise guy or really a guy you should expect to lean on the whole season. So they need Christian Derrissaw back. The good news is, is that Derrissaw was practicing today on Wednesday of this week. He has strung together now back-to-back weeks of practicing. Mike Zimmer cautioned last week, though, that this is going to be a long process with him. And my understanding is that when you're a 315-pound guy who's got a core muscle injury, it's pretty easy to aggravate that as somebody who has to contort and move your torso in the front line like he has to. So Because of that, the Vikings are going to take it slow, take it simple, considering how many setbacks he's already had up to this point. They would like to get him to play this season. So they're not going to try to rush him back onto the field. I wonder, Ben or Mike, or if you guys, either of you have any thoughts on this, will that plan change if Rashad Hill gets just beat up as badly as Taylor Lewan did? If if it's a four or five sack game again from Chandler Jones, uh, does the plan change to try to get Darius out there a little sooner than even they thought? Because I don't know how they're going to be able to move forward 
if their left tackle remains a liability. Who was it that a couple of weeks ago, I think you asked somebody about it that said something about Ole Udo playing right guard or left Kubiak. tackle. Yeah. 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 Kub- yeah. I, I, my thought is, is that and they haven't said this. I haven't heard this, but my thought is that Ole Udo is currently their backup tackle. Yeah. I mean, that's why I bring it up is that I, I think that may be door number three. Now, then does that make Wyatt Davis the right guard? Probably, I guess. It, it depends. Do you feel better about that than – well, I don't know what the other options are because I, I don't think they're going to try to rush Derisaw out there before they feel he's physically ready to do it. But then you're talking about moving a starter to a different spot a couple of games into his career as a starter, and then you're bringing in another player who's brand new at it. I just There's not a good – option here if you can't get through it with Rashad Hill and and maybe he'll be fine maybe it'll work out but the other piece that makes this more difficult is if you're gonna you're gonna leave extra help in for Rashad Hill Mike Zimmer talking about helping Garrett Bradbury you can't help everybody and if you do you have two guys to throw to I mean if you if you go max protect you have a three-man passing concept and you're going to get two of those guys doubled and your third one realistically is going to be either a receiver or a tight end that isn't as big of a threat as Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson. So there is always this thing of how much do you devote resources to protection versus keeping guys out as options in the passing game. And I don't think this is the type of game where you can sit there and try to win 14 to 10. I just, I, I don't think it's going to work. You're going to have to be in one of those games where you can score 35 points. I just, because I, I don't think this defense is going to be able to completely slow Kyler Murray down. And I just don't think the Cardinals play games where you end up in that type of a spot very often. You're going to have to be able to score on this team and, and uh, playing max protect and trying to string things together patiently is going to be a difficult way to do it. I think. Yeah, and Christian Derisaw is going to have to get back to fully practicing, participating in team drills, doing all those things. And Ben, you had mentioned before the season started, I think you had asked the coach as well, of like, how do you balance that when now all of your reps in practice are working on getting the actual starters ready? Yeah, yeah, how do you, that. yeah and how do you mix in a rookie when you're trying to get Rashad Hill prepared for Chandler Jones? How do you mix in a rookie in those settings too? So those are the things that they have to balance during the week and trying to get this kid reps and try to get him out there. And then when he is out there, that's when they're going to learn how he's going to handle all this because there was no preseason for him. Now that was all taken away because of this groin injury. So, um, and, and just the fact that they did this draft, they made this draft pick in Christian Derrissaw in a time in a pandemic where you couldn't do all the medical rechecks you wanted to do. The combine stuff was moved to April and it was just the top guys were going in terms of the medical checks. And so there wasn't as much information out there as you would have liked. And they, they rolled the dice on this kid and it is just not paying off right now. So to answer the question of when will Christian Derisov return? Uh, the, the answer is there isn't one it's he's out indefinitely and they are waiting on him to come back. But the fact that he's not on injured reserve, I got to point out that doesn't necessarily mean they expect him back within three weeks. That means they want him practicing. And if you're on injured reserve, you cannot be practicing. So the big thing is, is that this could be a four, five, six-week outlook for him, and they're just not going to put him on injured, injured reserve because they want him out there on the practice field because conditioning is another big factor with this kid as an offensive lineman who has not been able to move around that much. So a lot of questions there. Um, well, it, and it just underscores you know, the margin for error that was lost when you lose 
to a team like Cincinnati, right? Like if you find a way to pull that game out, which they very well could have, um, you know, they were, they were driving for perhaps at least a tie, you know, like, I don't know how that drive would have finished. If if Joseph would have made another field goal, how that would have, how it would have worked out, but there wasn't much time left. They they were were Exactly. And then again, you know, since everybody lost, nothing is, you know, they're still in the same position they were, but like, you look at their schedule, like, your the early the early game predictions for this team were kind of predicated on you beat Cincinnati and now you're like well Arizona looks better than we thought and then you got Russell Wilson who they've never beat like now it's like if you would have won yeah if you would have won that game you at least bought yourself some time where if you can win one of the next three you're two and two now you're like we've got to win two of these next three to feel decent about ourselves at the at the at the quarter close to the quarter mark of the season yeah, this 17 game thing is so stupid. I just, yeah, it's just, I yeah, it's it. trip me up all the time. It. Yeah, it's still, it's dumb. <laughs> all right, Mike, you got a question for us? I think you said our buddy Danny had a few questions for us. He did. I'll read one of them. Uh, he, here's, here's one who's right, and this is kind of an ongoing question who's right in the is Kirk holding the ball too long blame game? Do we think Kirk holds the ball too long? Do we think the offensive line isn't good, or is it, you know, get yourself a little bit of both? um i guess my opinion on it you saw a stat out there after the opener on thursday against the bucks and the cowboys where tom brady had the quickest um or i think it was the 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 fewest seconds spent in the pocket the quickest time to release basically but yet had the deepest average depth of target which is phenomenal that's like a magician like how do you do that and that's a stat that tracks like literally how many air yards, how far he's throwing it. This isn't one of those things where yards after the catch can skew uh, average yards per throw statistic. This is a thing where Tom Brady was literally throwing the ball farther than most people while getting it out quicker than most people. That alone tells you how much impact a quarterback has, in my opinion, on the offensive line. A guy who doesn't get sacked very often, a guy who, yes, has a great offensive line in front of him, but he also meets them halfway and gets the ball out. And when Kirk, the amount of times I see Kirk getting Garrett Bradbury driven back into him and Kirk just stands there, stands there cement footed until Garrett almost hits him. And then he kind of stumbles back and then tries to get rid of it. He's not having that feel that, that anticipation around him in the pocket, the way that you see some greats do a drew Brees was one that Mike Zimmer talks so much about whenever they face the saints of he's a guy who has an innate feel in the pocket where he knows how to move one inch to the left one inch to the right and knows where the pass rushers are going to be and where they're taking his offensive lineman and then keeps his eyes downfield and delivers it. Kirk just doesn't have that. We say it every year. And so, Ben, I don't know if you have any, any uh, differing opinion on that, but to me, I think Kirk does hold on to it too long. And even when he doesn't, there are things he can do to mitigate the damage his offensive line is causing, and he generally just doesn't do those things. I would like to enter as an exhibit in this debate that Vikings Twitter loves to have about Kirk Cousins a comments on this from one Kirk Cousins. I had this conversation with him a couple of years ago before the season. And we talked about what makes quarterbacks elite and what makes for the guys that are at the very top of the league that he tries to emulate. And he, one of the first things he brought up is I look at guys who have not given up a lot of sacks over or haven't been sacked a lot over the course of their careers. And he said, if you look at a guy, one of the names he brought up was Philip Rivers. If you look at a guy that has played as long as he has and hasn't had a lot of years where he's getting sacked a ton, you have to figure at times in that stretch, 
you're going to have bad offensive lines. You're going to have guys get hurt. So if you have quarterbacks that consistently aren't sacked very much, Breeze would be another one that I think he brought up. That probably has something to do with them. So the very uh, analytically compatible take that sacks are a quarterback stat, Cousins, I think, buys into that a little bit based on the, the conversations I had with him on that subject a couple of years ago. So, yes, some of it has been their line. They've had issues there. But I think when you talk about Brady, I think a lot of that, it's not athleticism necessarily. It is it's probably knowing how to move within the pocket. But I think it's also processing time. It's just he's got the fastest microchip in his brain. That's not a vaccine joke. Not a vaccine joke. <laughs> That's just saying if you're comparing him to a computer, he's got, he's got 6G. a new iPhone 13 microchip thing. Uh, somebody else is probably still playing with something from like an iPhone 5. So not a vaccine joke. Once again, don't get mad at me, Vikings Twitter or whoever's listening to this. Just saying that part of it with Brady, I think, is how fast he sees things, digests it, diagnoses coverage, and then goes to where the ball is supposed to go, uh, given that. For the record, that would work very well as a vaccine joke. It would have worked very well as a vaccine joke, but that was not what I was going for. Oh, that was a good question, though. It was a good question because, yeah, it's on everybody's mind when you see Kirk holding the ball back there. And Mike Zimmer did say the only time I thought, the only sack, I should say, of the four. Well, there was three sacks. There was really four. One was negated by a defensive holding call on Eli Apple for the Bengals. But Zimmer said of the three sacks that counted, the only one he was holding onto the ball too long was when they were backed up to their own end zone. Uh, and Kirk just flat out didn't get rid of it against a three-man rush. And when you see three-man rushes get home, that happened on the sack that was negated, which was in the red zone. And then that penalty by uh, the Bengals' defensive back gave the Vikings the first and goal that then led to the Thielen touchdown, the five-yarder on the pylon throw. Um, the fact that the three-man rushes were getting home as often as they were, that says everything about Kirk and not just taking the underneath option He's not reading the fact that there's eight in coverage and I just need to get the quick ball out because the deep shots aren't going to be there or the ones farther downfield because of how many they're dropping in coverage. You are seeing that processing point. That, that's a really good point because you just don't see him process as quickly. Maybe he needs to upgrade that micro trip. Um, uh, <laughs> was that uh, a vaccine joke? It, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. It's just how many of these things can work as double entendres though are pretty great considering the uh, conspiracy theory realm that we live in. Um all right, Joel Thomas has a good one. He says, not a question, just a prediction. Chandler Jones will have more sacks than Randball. Our buddy Mike Rand can eat Taco John's tacos. Mike, what not say possible. you? What say that'd you? Be a lot, that'd be, that would set a record since I eat 15 and usually I eat. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Most Taco Tuesdays, I do eat five. And it's been a long time since I've done a Taco Tuesday. I've done one during the whole pandemic and um, I had five. So I mean, that's how many Chandler Jones had last week. So if we set the over under number at five, then I guess it's reasonable to think, but if he's talking about like the, the, the dumb day when I had 15, then no, no. Mike, no, that's the thing I was thinking about just now too. And I, I hadn't thought about this angle of that loss to the Bengals until just this moment, but that doesn't help our chances here, Andrew. It went in the taco bed. Like we, they, they lost to Ohio state that helped out. They almost, they tried to blow it last week against Miami of Ohio. So we could have been sitting there up one with 16 games left, but that Bengals loss, uh, being able to take care of teams you should beat from the state of Ohio, we are uh, 
not off to a good start there. Yeah, we are down one in that instance since the Gophers got it done against the Ohio team and the Vikings did not. And this Cardinals Three game. games have been played uh, by both these teams. They've all been against teams from the state of Ohio. Notice that. That is odd. It's odd stat. We're going to stop that this week, though. We, we are. This Because this one against the Cardinals is going to be a tough That's going to be a tough one. I don't know, Ben. I don't feel good about our taco bet right now either. No, no. I, I think uh, it's going to take a lot of uh, boats getting – grounded before they're able to be rowed for us to win this thing, at least the way it's looking. Now the NFL changes quickly, as uh, Sid Hartman was fond of saying. It's a crazy league. But right now, I, I don't – as I look at the next few, probably three weeks of matchups here, don't feel great about it. All right, speaking of next three weeks or so, Skoll or whatever says, is Anthony Barr's knee cooked uh, ben, what, what say you? Is Anthony Barr's knee cooked? Meaning, is this, is this, I think the question is trying to infer, is this broader than a short-term injury for Anthony Barr? Well, there are chronic issues underneath it. I, I still don't have a complete sense of whether this is a injury he sustained in practice or if this is just the ongoing stuff. I, I know there is a long history of knee issues in both knees. Had, uh, I believe the left one had his meniscus operated on after his rookie season that ended his rookie season. But my understanding is he has issues with both knees over the course of his career. And the way they've talked about it, we have a plan for him. We're just being smart with him. That feels like chronic stuff to me. And I know that is part of the equation with him. So are they cooked? Um, I mean, he's been able to manage it for the last few years. So I would think he'd be able to do it again. But, man, he's practiced once in limited fashion. We haven't seen it for three straight days. I, that's not a great sign. I, I just think in, in a best case scenario, this is going to be the pesky kind of thing you're trying to manage and deal with probably all year. And um, that's not a, that's not a good, good uh, place that anybody wants to be. No, it's another unfortunate situation for them. And especially how they decided to build this roster this off season and keeping Anthony Barr instead of cutting him, uh, eating into more of their money and a guy that too at a position, they just don't have the depth. Uh, Nick Vigil, I thought had a good game. Mike Zimmer was very complimentary of him, but He's not Anthony Barr. He doesn't fit the way that they like to fit him in the run game, um, especially how they use him as a blitzer. It's usually he's one of the guys that can spring loose after the quarterback. And as I previously mentioned, when they face mobile quarterbacks, Barr is the guy they typically put as a spy on him. They don't like to take Eric Kendricks or one of their safeties or one of their guys who are better in coverage. Barr, not really good backpedaling all the time, is pretty good when he has things in front of him and trying to, and a guy who's long too and can kind of corral these quarterbacks we're more mobile. They're going to miss him, I think on Sunday, because it certainly doesn't look like they're going to have him out there as he hasn't practiced. And yeah, Ben, as you mentioned, one practice for Anthony Barr in the last five weeks uh, is just not a good sign right now for him. And it does sound like it's going to be a long-term issue with those knees. Um, uh, Brad wants to know how many impactful players do the Vikings have from their 2018 to 2020 draft classes? And I actually looked this up. Jefferson. I looked this up because I was curious. I think you can count seven right now. And when I say impactful, I'm, I'm leaving the door open as in you assume DJ Wanham will develop as a starter now into an impactful player. KJ Osborne is showing some things. Ezra Cleveland is a starter. You got Brian O'Neill, Irv Smith, Tyler Conklin, and Justin Jefferson. Those are the seven that I was able to put down. And that's leaving that's out. Yeah, that's leaving out 
Um, Alexander Madison is leaving out Chris Boyd, BC Johnson. Daniel Carlson's become a successful NFL kicker. <laughs> Zing. Uh, hey, Greg, jo- we don't need him. Greg Joseph, Ben. They got Greg Joseph. The game Joseph. winner against Lamar Jackson. Kicking 53 yard field goals, though. He's not that, Greg Joseph. That's true. Give him credit. <laughs> that was a big kick. I didn't think he was going to make it. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, I think the point that Brad's trying to make, though, is that those drafts, some of those top picks have not panned out. And we've talked about them already in Cameron Dantzler, Jeff Gladney. Um, I'm trying Mike to think Hughes. of Mike. Oh, yeah. Mike Hughes. Yeah. The, the, the biggest issue is the first round track record, right? Yeah. That their, their latest one, Christian Derrissaw not being out there right now. Brad uh, Bradman in group two. Yeah, Bradbury, man, he just had such a bad game in Cincinnati. It was a tough, tough uh, tone to set for his third year. Um, all right, what other questions we got? Mike, you got any for us? Ben, you got any for us? Um, I got one more from Danny here, if you want. Says, uh, how did Ole Udo hold up? We didn't really talk about him at guard. Was he? How much of the problem was he in that game, or do we feel like he was okay? I like the fact – sorry, Ben, what would you say? The penalty was big, and the roughing, the unnecessary roughness penalty was big. I think he he gave up. I think he had a couple of moments where I noticed him in pass protection where he gave up some pressure. But the penalty was probably the biggest moment of it. I was going to say I liked the penalty. If you were going to, out of all the penalties, the one where you just you're so mad that you just take a guy out who's already on the ground, it was stupid. It was a boneheaded penalty. You really should never do it. Kids don't do it. But if you, this is an offensive line that gets bullied. And this dude was out there looking to headhunt. And you know what? I can see why they put him in the lineup because he's a guy who can actually go out there and hit somebody. He looked like the guy who could handle himself the best against those 340 pound nose tackles that the Bengals had. He looked like an NFL player size wise. I'm not saying he has it technique wise. I'm not saying he can pass protect well yet, but at least he can move earth a little bit. He can move some bodies as the late Tony Sperano would say he can dent people. And I think that's what you've got to like if you're the Vikings. You at least have somebody that's not going to get bullied. He's not going to get pushed around. And uh, I, I like that out of him. But if he can level it out a little bit, be smarter, yeah, they might have an actual player there. That's like the most like sports talk radio guy I've ever heard from you. And you and I have worked together now for like nine years. Me too. So this is a fairly large sample size, but I like a statement. Like, yeah, Gotta make a statement. Make a statement. I liked it that he was just, yeah, he wasn't getting, I think it just, it stands out so much because the other two guys that got Garrett and Ezra are just getting pushed around. And I, I just think that stands out much more. And so the way Oli stood out is by not getting bullied, I guess. So take that. Okay. Is that a good thing? I don't know. Maybe it is. It's at least a start. It's a start for him. So. You can find a way to do that without the 15 yard penalty. Probably all of that. <laughs> That's probably true. All right. Yeah. You can catch me drive time five to seven. No, please don't. <laughs> um, all right, guys, that'll be it for this episode of the access Vikings podcast. You can check out all my hot takes after the Arizona Cardinals game uh, Sunday from Glendale, Arizona. Please check out all of our work at startribune.com. Maybe you should get off the podcast. <laughs>